0: Welcome to the weekly appellate report for May 19th, 2017. It's the Daily Journal's weekly podcast covering all manner of appellate law and developments with commentary and insights from California practitioners, jurists, and academics. Today's show will regard two U.S. Supreme Court matters. One is a cert denial in a widely followed election law case, and the other is a ruling re emphasizing and perhaps expanding the High Court's endorsement of arbitration as a means of dispute resolution. The cert denial came in a case that's attracted quite a bit of national attention as a uh, sort of judicial bellwether, defining just how much free range states now have, in a post-Shelby County v. Holder world, to enact legislation that's ostensibly designed to deter voter fraud, but that many say unduly restricts the fundamental right of suffrage. Here the case arose after North Carolina freed of the Voting Rights Act's preclearance requirements, passed legislation that, among other things, restricted early voting and required voters to present certain forms of identification at the ballot box. The Fourth Circuit eventually struck down those provisions and did so by dint of some novel legal reasoning, using partisan discrimination as a proxy for racial discrimination and thereby deeming the laws racially discriminatory. We'll be welcoming in a widely respected and oft-consulted expert in election law, Professor Richard Hassan of UCI Law. He'll join me to unpack the search denial, which comes as a, a bit of a surprise as four of the Shelby County majority remain on the bench. And of course, they're joined by newly minted Justice Gorsuch. Professor Hassen explains the Fourth Circuit's reasoning here, how its novel legal theory will impact other voting law cases around the country and what uh, what the future might hold in this particular area of jurisprudence, which is clearly still in ferment just a few years after the Shelby County ruling. Then I'll speak with Professor Adam Zimmerman from Loyola Law School about the U.S. Supreme Court arbitration ruling rendered Monday, which strikes down a Kentucky Supreme Court ruling that the country's high court deemed to have discriminated against and subordinated arbitration as a means of dispute resolution in contravention of the Federal Arbitration Act. Some legal analysts view this ruling as as no more than a reaffirmance of SCOTUS's pro-arbitration stance, reiterated vigorously of, of late. But Professor Zipperman explains why this case might actually expand, slightly but meaningfully, the court's endorsement of the alternate method of dispute resolution. Before we do hear from my guests, though, I'd be remiss not to mention a word or two about an especially prominent appeal knocking around the Ninth Circuit. It's the appeal of a Hawaii injunction issued against President Donald Trump's revised travel ban. The case heard oral arguments Monday, and they were covered by our very own immigration law reporter, Chase DiFelici Antonio, who we'll bring on now to give us a sense of just how those arguments proceeded. Chase, welcome to the podcast. Glad to be here. So uh, you covered the arguments this week, heard Monday, and uh, of course, Donald Trump's least favorite appellate uh, circuit, the Ninth Circuit. There's also, coincidentally, oral arguments that were heard, I think, last week in the Fourth Circuit, uh, in, in the same, same matter, also a Maryland district court had enjoined the enforcement of the ban. What, uh, what were your overall impressions from uh, Monday's oral argument?
1: So I think what was most interesting about Monday's oral argument in the, in the Ninth Circuit was that whereas the, the Fourth Circuit argument really focused on uh, whether or not certain statements could be considered um, as context for, for the travel ban, uh, this iteration of the travel ban, which itself does not mention um, religion or Muslims uh, per se. That was definitely a major focus of the of oral arguments in the Ninth Circuit, um, but they also, uh, really got to, to other issues. Um, they, they, they were really debated the, the issue of, of standing, uh, quite specifically. And, uh, it was brought up, uh, that, um, the Congress had in the past debated these issues themselves and, and what bearing does that have, um, on the president's authority? So, well, I think a lot of people were really looking to, to hear mainly this argument about uh, Trump's, uh, statements of a candidate and then some, uh, as president, um, I think the arguments were, were a little more wide-ranging than, than maybe some folks uh, expected to hear, especially
0: after the Fourth uh, Circuit arguments. Okay, so it sounds like the focus was on a, a few different areas of contention on those main points of contention. Um, what, uh, what were the principal arguments that were made from both sides, the, the government attorney and the attorney representing the I guess, the respondents here who support the injunction of the travel ban?
1: So. The council for the government, uh, Jeffrey B. Wall, was his name, uh, what he was saying is uh, you have to look at the order on its face and that you cannot necessarily go and, and, and look behind it. And then even if you were to do that, th- there are exceptions that, that allow for, if you believe the is made in bad faith, um, you have to provide a certain level of, of deference to the office of the president. And this is kind of a, an argument that um, w- wasn't necessarily touched on too much in the Fourth Circuit, uh, but you, you really stress that point Um, and he, he stressed the point that the order itself, um, does not say the word Muslim was the previous order, the first order, uh, you know, referred to religion and Christian. This order really does not, and was was kind of rewritten specifically not to do so. Um, and the, uh, uh, the plaintiff's counsel was essentially saying that you do have to look behind those arguments and that, um, it is a nationality based discrimination and that it really... It flouts what Congress has um, articulated in the past. The Congress has said that these um, six countries, that, that Trump is trying to temporarily ban, um, that they require visas to come to the United States just for this reason. Um, whereas the government was saying um, that the only thing that they're trying to do, essentially, is to, to, to put a temporary stoppage on this so that they can go back and uh, and review um, their, their vetting procedures and that this is of, at least in wording is, is, is a temporary ban.
0: Then uh, last one for you. Do, do you have any sense as to uh, how receptive the panel or individual judges were to the arguments on either side? Any sense of how this um, this appeal might shake down?
1: I would say all three judges were, were pretty tenacious in their questioning of, of each side. I think in that way it, it was balanced and they didn't necessarily show their cards. What I would say is that, um, Judge Paez, who's considered to be, what I understand, um, the most liberal of the three on the panel, um, brought up the, uh, the Korematsu case, um, the, the, the case of, uh, of Japanese internment during the Second World War and, um, and really pushed, uh, the government council to, to make comparison between Koromatsu and, and, and this case. And I, I think that in and of itself kind of gives you an idea of, of where his thinking was, where, where he was coming from. Um, definitely in light of his, uh, his more liberal uh, previous meetings and decisions.
0: Okay, uh, great. Well, we'll find out soon enough how the panel feels about this revised travel ban. Uh, for now, Chase Difelici Antonio, Daily Journal, immigration reporter. Thanks for bringing us up to speed on the uh, latest developments in this appeal. All right, thank you. again to Chase DiFelice Antonio. We'll hear now from Professor Richard Hassan from UCI Law School on the U.S. Supreme Court's denial of cert and the appeal of the Fourth Circuit's striking down of North Carolina's post-Shelby County voting laws. It's my true pleasure to welcome to the podcast now Professor Rick Hassan, University of California at Irvine, a nationally known and widely respected expert in the area of election law and campaign finance regulation, the founder of the election law blog, and the author of several books, including most recently, Plutocrats United, Campaign Money, the Supreme Court, and the Distortion of American Elections. Professor Haston, welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure to be with you. So uh, we're chatting this morning about a case that earlier this week was denied cert by the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, this is one that's garnered quite a bit of national attention. It revolves around some North Carolina state laws that put some some obstacles between its citizens and their ability to vote, including things like requiring a, a, a picture ID. Um, the Fourth Circuit had struck down those laws. And now that that ruling will stay in place, though, of course, the cert denial is not a affirmance on the merits. But uh, it's important nonetheless, and it's a case that you and, and many others have regarded as, as very significant and one that will have some profound impacts in this area of law. So we'll get into just why that is, maybe starting out first with some context here. This case sort of begins a few years back at the end of a, another Supreme Court case, Shelby County v. Holder, which is one that a lot of folks will know. It deals with the Voting Rights Act of 1965 and reconsidered some portions of it. Um, what exactly did the court decide in that case, the Shelby County case, and how does that sort of set the, the preface for this case we're talking about today?
2: Sure. So uh, since 1965, a number of jurisdictions with a handful uh, – uh, with a um, history of racial discrimination in voting had to obtain approval or what's been known as preclearance from either the Department of Justice or from a 3 judge federal court in Washington, D.C. Uh, and uh, this would, they'd have to get approval anytime they wanted to make any change in their voting rules, from something as large as a redistricting plan to as small as moving a polling place across the street. Mm-hmm. Uh, this preclearance provision was put in place to make sure that uh, minority groups would not be made worse off by any changes, because before the Voting Rights Act was in place, the Department of Justice would come down and sue these mostly Southern jurisdictions, say, there's a uh, problem, you're violating the voting rights of African Americans. Uh, they'd win the suit, the law would change, DOJ would leave, and then the jurisdiction would go back to a bad practice that would be slightly different from the one that was found to be illegal. And so preclearance put the burden on these jurisdictions that had engaged in these kinds of practices and said, no, you've got to get permission before you make these changes that was in 1965 over the years additional jurisdictions were added to the list of those that had to get preclearance including four counties in California hmm. in the Shelby County case in 2013 the Supreme Court said that the formula that was used to decide which uh, states and jurisdictions were subject to preclearance was unconstitutional it was too old it was based on data from the 1960s and 70s Congress knew about this problem but chose not to update the formula and therefore it violated what uh, the chief justice called the equal sovereignty of states, a controversial view of the Constitution, no doubt, leading to this 5-4 to four decision. Uh, but the upshot of the decision was that uh, states and localities that had uh, to get approval for their voting rules no longer had to do so. And One of those states was the state of North Carolina where 40 out of 100 of North Carolina's jurisdictions were covered under this provision, the Voting Rights Act. The North Carolina legislature had recently flipped from Democratic control to Republican control. Republicans came in and they passed what some have called a monster voting law, a law which made a number of changes in the way that elections were handled in North Carolina, uh, some provisions quite controversial. It did not have to be precleared. it could put in, be put into effect immediately. And then that led to suits under the Constitution and other provisions of the Voting Rights Act claiming that these, uh, the this law, or at least parts of this law, were illegal.
0: Okay, maybe we could unpack the, the rules and the, the laws that were put into place after the Shelby County decision in North Carolina. What specifically are some of the provisions that were enacted after, after Shelby County and after the time that North Carolina would not then need to get those rules pre-cleared by the federal government?
2: Right, well, this law was very large. Uh, there were... Uh, a number of parts of it that were challenged. Um, one you've already mentioned was a requirement of a strict voter identification uh, requirements to be able to vote. Uh, another said that if you voted in the wrong precinct, uh, when uh, even if that was the fault of the poll workers who might have directed you to the wrong place to vote, your vote wouldn't count. Another eliminated same-day voter registration, so you could register and vote on the same day. Uh, another uh, got rid of the pre-registration of 16 and 17 year olds, mostly students in high school who could be registered to vote before they turned 18 and went off to college, so that they'd be all set to go once they turned 18. Uh, these uh, 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 and um, uh, I think the, I think those were I, I may be missing one, but those were the main ones that were challenged. As the case was about to go to trial, North Carolina softened its. Uh, voter ID law to allow people who didn't have one of the narrow forms of ID that were allowed under the law to switch to a, uh, uh, a different, some different ways of proving their identity. And North Carolina argued that this now made the law permissible. In the end, a trial court held two trials, issued a 485-page decision, upheld the law, and then the case was appealed to the United States Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit, where the Fourth Circuit uh, reversed, finding that these uh, provisions were enacted with racially discriminatory intent, and therefore they could not be put into place. Uh, This was the ruling that the Supreme Court declined to uh, rule on when it last issued uh, orders on Monday.
0: Okay, we'll get into that Fourth Circuit ruling a bit more deeply and and look at the the legal doctrine that it it used and, and sort of perhaps created as well. But before we get there, I'd like to hear um, your opinions. At the outset, we should note you're, you're not neutral when it comes to these laws. You have some strong feelings and feel that the, the North Carolina laws that were enacted are unduly burdensome, and you call them the strictest set of voting rules passed since the Voting Rights Act. Um, what, in your opinion, is wrong with things like requiring a voting ID or some of the other elements of, of this law?
2: I actually don't oppose the concept of voter identification laws uh, in the abstract. I actually would like to see us move to a system of national voter ID as well as universal voter registration conducted by the government, um, where the government would pay all of the costs associated with doing so, have a national system. We don't have that national system at all right now. We have a state and local system for administering even our federal elections. The problem with voter ID laws as they are put in place is that. Uh, the kinds of identifications that are allowed uh, in some of the stricter states are a narrow set and they seem to be targeted to uh, uh, encompass people who are likely to vote for Republicans but not vote for Democrats. So for example, um, poor people, people who live in cities, people who move, um, all of these people are less likely to have driver's licenses and driver's licenses are a permissible form. Uh, of ID, many students have student IDs, uh, but student IDs are often not allowed under these laws. In fact, in Texas, where there's another uh, a, ch- a challenge to Texas I- ID law, which has already been found to violate one part of the Voting Rights Act, you could not use a student identification to vote, but you could use a concealed weapons permit. And so, uh, it seems pretty clear that these laws are designed, even if they don't necessarily have the effect of trying to make it harder for people are likely to vote uh, on the Democratic side to be able to register and to vote.
0: Tell me about the, the claim that was brought. Are we talking about a constitutional challenge as well as the challenge relating to the Voting Rights Act?
2: There were a number of claims that were brought. Uh, there were uh, uh, um, claims that it was a poll tax. There are there all kinds of claims brought in uh, the North Carolina case. Uh, all of them were rejected by the district court judge the Appeals Court, the Fourth Circuit, uh, only ruled on one aspect of the case because that was enough to decide the case. Uh, and the court ruled that uh, this law violated both the Voting Rights Act and the 14th and 15th Amendments because it was a law passed with racially discriminatory intent. And here the theory was quite interesting because this is not necessarily racial animus uh, uh, passing a law with the intent to make it harder for people of a particular race to vote. What the uh, Fourth Circuit said was that race and party are proxies for one another in the state of North Carolina. So North Carolina, we know that upwards of 90% of African-American voters in the state are Democrats. And uh, what the uh, court said was that uh, if you are a Republican legislature and you pass a law to hurt Democrats knowing uh, that this law is going to have a negative effect on a group of minority voters, that constitutes racial uh, discrimination. Mm-hmm. So that is a uh, somewhat controversial theory. Uh, finding intentional discrimination meant that the court wouldn't um, simply soften the voter ID law and make it easier to get around. It threw the entire set of laws out. Uh, and so uh, this theory, which I think, is a plausible kind of argument to make given the overlap of race and party in the American South uh, is one that the court, since it didn't address it in this case, could well address in other cases coming uh, down the line.
0: To make it clear that that's a fairly novel legal doctrine that they've uh, elucidated there that you have a, a group of folks from a particular race and a group of folks from a particular party and those Venn diagram circles sort of overlap, and so discriminating against party is effectively the same as di- discriminating against race.
2: Well, it's not completely novel, and in fact, uh, there was a case here in California, a Ninth Circuit case, uh, involving uh, the um, Board of Supervisors races, and uh, one of the uh, arguments that was brought up that the way the supervisorial districts were drawn in Los Angeles was uh, uh, violating the, intentionally violating the voting rights of Latinos, Just Judge Kaczynski uh, Judge Alex Kinsey of the Ninth Circuit wrote a concurring opinion which has proven to be very influential where he said that if your purpose is to protect incumbents uh, white incumbents and you do this knowing that it is going to hurt Latino voters this is a form of intentional race discrimination so this theory has been around uh, it's now picking up steam because what we're seeing uh, especially over the last say 10 to 20 years is that race and party are becoming increasingly correlated with white voters, again, especially in the South, voting for Republicans; African American voters, and to a lesser extent, Latino voters voting
0: for Democrats. Okay. Now, in, a, in some of your writing, you contend that that the second step of this legal analysis—that okay, there's discrimination against a party, and one party has sort of the majority of a particular race within it, and therefore it's racially discriminatory—the the law. Do you say that potentially? Uh, it's a it's a sound legal theory, or it could be that if uh, a law discriminates against just a particular party, that's as far as a court might need to go, and that that should be viewed as um, as problematic. Uh, could you expand a bit more on that, do I have that quite right?
2: So if you take the area of redistricting, for example, so far the Supreme Court has said that engaging in partisan gerrymandering is, uh, I don't want to say it's constitutional, but there's no judicial remedy for partisan gerrymandering while if it's racial gerrymandering if it's race discrimination then there is a remedy and so a lot of the cases that we've seen uh not like the fourth circuit case but like some of the other cases that we've seen including one that's pending right now before the supreme court out of north carolina involving the redistricting called mccrory versus harris Uh, a lot of these cases involve the courts trying to put uh, a conduct of a legislature into either the race box or the party box is it motivated by one or the other and I think what the fourth circuit opinion recognizes is that this is an increasingly artificial way to think about things when a Republican white legislature passes a set of rules that hurt Democrats who are overwhelmingly minority uh, it's impossible to say whether that's motivated by race or party They are completely overlapping concepts and so Therefore, it is it is a uh, you know, p- uh, potentially both rather than either or situation.
0: Okay, maybe getting back into the details of this case. So after that Fourth Circuit ruling that strikes down the law, the state appeals, but there's some interesting timing and procedural elements here. Now we're getting uh, into the election cycle in North Carolina. This is uh, the ruling was in 2016, and after that election, a Democrat is elected to the governorship the legislature remains Republican. So now those two different branches have different thoughts on whether the state should appeal that case, whether they want the laws to stand or fall. The Democratic governor seeks uh, the case to be rescinded for the Supreme Court to not take a look at it. Um, I guess it, this is sort of an interesting fight. Is it clear who has the, the right to say whether the, the state is appealing or not, the legislature or the governor?
2: Well, it was not clear. And in fact, I was the one that suggested in an uh, article in Slate that the new Democratic governor and new Democratic attorney general should uh, try to do this, to try to withdraw the cert petition. They eventually did, kind of at the last minute. Uh, the legislature uh, said that they did not have the power to do this. I read the North Carolina law, and it was very uncertain. And the Supreme Court was asked both to... Dismiss the cert petition as well as to allow the legislature to intervene and take over. And rather than get into this intra state dispute over who can speak for the state of North Carolina, the court didn't rule on those petitions and instead decided not to hear the case. And we know that this dispute Affected at least one justice on the Supreme Court, Chief Justice Roberts, who issued a separate statement saying that this was a bizarre, those his words, a bizarre uh, uh, issue within the state as to who speaks for the state. And given that uh, it was not appropriate for the court to take the case, and that should not be read as any decision on the merits. And of course, a decision on cert is not a decision on the merits.
0: Okay, maybe setting aside that controversy as to who speaks for the state and and who should be able to, to say whether or not the, the appeal uh, maintains. A few months ago when the petition was brought, it seemed likely, I think, among the folks who were paying attention to this case that, that the review would be granted and perhaps the case would be overturned. At that point, I understand, of the justices had voted to to stay the Fourth Circuit's decision to let the, the North Carolina laws remain in effect through the November elections, of course, those four remain on the court, and we have Neil Gorsuch now. um, Was the general consensus that this case was going to be heard and perhaps then reversed?
2: Well, you never know what's going to go on at the Supreme Court, but I certainly thought it was a good candidate for being heard, especially because it's not a high-profile case and one of the first cases coming after the Shelby County decision. It also presented this very interesting and novel theory about what it means to engage in intentional racial discrimination when race and party Overlap so greatly as categories.
0: Do you think then that the the cert denial mostly had to do with the uncertainty as to you know what was going on at the the North Carolina level? What do you think explains the denial?
2: Well, we'd be speculating other than for uh, the um, Chief Justice who told us what he was thinking. Uh, but remember, it takes four to grant cert. The liberals would be unlikely to want to hear this case, given that the conservatives would be likely to reverse if they did hear this case. So that means that probably there was at least one other justice besides the chief justice among the conservatives who was not willing to hear this case. And this case was relisted four times. And it could have been that that was giving, uh, justice Gorsuch new on the court time to get up to speed and decide what he wanted to do on the case. There were a number of cases that, uh, have been listed multiple times and that, um, are finally starting to work through the process as Justice Gorsuch is presumably getting up to speed.
0: You know, as you say, and as Chief Justice Roberts stresses, this is not a ruling on the merits. The Supreme Court has not placed its stamp of imprimatur upon the Four Circuits ruling to any extent. Um, but nonetheless, you say that this is a, a very significant ruling. It's a, it's a big deal in the area of voting rights and election law. Uh, why, in your opinion, is it, is it so important?
2: Well, this case has already been relied upon by uh, a uh, the chief judge uh, in uh, the, I'm going to get this wrong, I forget which district in Texas, but in Houston, Chief Judge Rosenthal issued a very important opinion involving uh, discrimination in Pasadena, Texas. And that case, too, involved this overlap of race and party. In fact, there was testimony in that case that when they were trying to change their redistricting rules, uh, the city... Uh, sent out mailers, uh, to try to convince voters to make this registering change. And, uh, the mayor, uh, the mayor's chief of staff instructed those sending out the mailing to pull out the Hispanic names. And, uh, he later testified in court that when he said Hispanic, he meant Democrat and that he was equating Anglo with Republican and Hispanic with Democrat. And the judge citing the Fourth Circuit case said, uh here race and party are proxies for one another and this would be a good reason to treat this as a kind of intentional racial discrimination. And the judge in the in this Pasadena Texas case went even further than the Fourth Circuit. Once there is a finding of intentional racial discrimination in voting, there's another provision of the Voting Rights Act that can kick in that gives a court discretion to put a jurisdiction back under preclearance for up to ten years. And Uh, Judge Rosenthal did exactly that for Pasadena, Texas. For the next six years, its voting rules have to be reviewed by the Department of Justice or a three-judge court in order to be uh, allowed. And so this is coming uh, uh, as a potential theory in other parts of the country. And so it's important, at least for the short term, that this opinion from the Fourth Circuit is out there as valid precedent. Precedent, excuse me.
0: Sure. Yeah, so... The, the law has already, as you say, been, been built upon in the common law fashions So, to, were to be struck down. That would obviously undermine that, that law. I imagine there must be cases like this in, in other states. And um, I know Wisconsin also had a case that was uh, relating to, to this same idea. So is the, is the Fourth Circuit legal doctrine going to be, you think, applied in, in other states? Or are there other are cases and laws that are at issue uh, now around the country
2: well, yes. I mean, this is still a live issue in the Texas voter ID case, which is back before the trial court. The trial court recently found intentional racial discrimination in that case. Uh, and there are, in addition, uh, there's a Texas redistricting case uh, involving both the congressional districts and the state house districts where this is at issue and where the dissenting judge, Judge Jerry Smith of the Fifth Circuit, actually engaged with my have a draft law review article on this race or party problem, and he said that we have to treat these as binary, either or kinds of topics. So this issue is is percolating in the lower courts and will, I think, eventually have to be sorted out by the Supreme Court.
0: Sure. Yeah, that would be my last question for you. How do you sort of forecast the future of this particular legal question, this legal doctrine put forth by the Fourth Circuit? Uh, It seems fairly safe to assume there are at least five Justices on the Supreme Court somewhat skeptical of the you know, how broad federal protections need to be uh, for voting rights, how nearly the, the federal government should police these sorts of things. So where do you see this jurisprudence uh, going in the future?
2: Well, I think we don't know for sure. Uh, Justice Gorsuch did not have to weigh in on these most of these kinds of issues while he was a Tenth Circuit judge. If he's as conservative as the person he replaced, Justice Scalia, that would be a fifth vote to be very skeptical of expanding voting rights protections, and in fact, likely be a vote to contract them. But I think uh, it's a little early to judge till we start seeing some opinions from Justice Gorsuch to you know exactly where he's going to stand on these kinds of questions. Uh, I consider what happened in the uh, Supreme Court den- uh, decision to deny cert in the Fourth Circuit case as a victory, I would not, as someone who believes in an expansive view of voting rights, want to be before the Supreme Court now. And I'm glad that at least for the time being, the Fourth Circuit uh, case remains out there as valid precedent. Sure.
0: Yeah, remains a uh, good law for other courts to rely on. So for now, um, certainly a, an important victory for voting rights proponents. And uh, I really appreciate uh, Professor Rick of of UCI Law School joining me to, to chat about it. Thanks very much, Professor. Thank you. Once again, that was Professor Richard Hassan, UCI Law School. Let's hear now from Professor Adam Zimmerman of Loyola Law School, speaking about Monday's U.S. Supreme Court ruling in an arbitration matter that reaffirmed and, and perhaps expanded the court's approbation of this method of alternate dispute resolution. Very happy to be joined now by Professor Adam Zimmerman, Professor of Law and Jael Rosen Fellow at Loyola Law School, where he teaches among other things towards administrative law and complex litigation. Professor Zimmerman, welcome to the podcast Hi, thanks for having me okay so uh, we're talking about a case that was ruled upon Monday out of the u s Supreme Court Kindred Nursing Center Limited partnership for Clark it's that one that you wrote. About in Loyola Law School's Summary Judgments blog, it's a it's a short opinion. In some ways, it's a fairly narrow question. We're talking about arbitration clauses and contracts uh, entered into by folks um, acting as agents for for other people under power of attorney agreements. Um, but as you write, there's also some some broader strands that we can pull out of this ruling, and uh, certainly nested within the, the larger context of. Arbitration jurisprudence, which has been a big deal at the, the court over the past few years, it's a very interesting one to to take a look at. So let's go ahead and dive in here. Of course, we're talking about an arbitration clause and an agreement. So tell me who the parties are to that agreement and uh, what the what the nature of the agreements at issue. Or you know, there's probably a couple of them. There was some. There were two plaintiffs that had their cases consolidated. I believe.
3: That's right. There were well, there were actually uh, uh, in the lower court in the Kentucky court. There were three cases. Two cases up before the Supreme Court. Um, one involved Olive Clark and the other involved Joel Wilner, but it wasn't just those two parties. Um, those two parties had executed powers of attorneys to their relatives. Olive um, granted a power of attorney to her daughter Janice, and Joe had granted a power of attorney uh, to Beverly. Uh, both uh, powers of attorney were written in slightly different ways that were material to the outcome of the case before the Supreme Court. Um, Olive's power of attorney was written in very general and broad language, um, while Joe Welner's um, attorney was written much more narrowly. Um, but uh, d- based on these powers of attorney, um, the uh, the parties were admitted to the Fountain Center Circle Health and Rehabilitation Center um, back in August of 2008, um, and um, they signed agreements Um, to admit their relatives to these centers, and in so doing, even though it wasn't a condition of admission, also executed arbitration agreements.
0: Okay. So, any conflict that would arise between those folks in the nursing center would, under that agreement, go into arbitration?
3: That's right. And, you know, to take a step back for a second, just within the larger context of these types of arbitration agreements at nursing centers. Um, You know, a lot of times what attorneys who represent individuals in these types of cases will often say is that, you know, it's a really difficult time when you are trying to make decisions about um, a loved one um, when admitting them to a nursing home. Usually, you haven't really thought it through. The relative is, you know, in an emergency circumstance in the hospital and two or three days before they're about to be um discharged, some social worker meets with a family member and says, Where's your mom gonna go? or where's your grandma gonna go? And um, you're given a brochure or a few brochures and within a few days, like the you know, you're 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 just trying to figure out like where's someone to go so I can go back to work. Um, and so the conditions under which these contracts are formed are not always sort of the best or easiest of circumstances for any family member. Um I'm sure that was this the condition here. Um, and an issue is the extent to which um, when someone with a power of attorney is entering into um, a contract for services in a nursing home, they're also um, required to resolve their disputes in arbitration.
0: okay, so then what uh, what prompts the the parties here to to bring suit? Um, I understand both of the, the folks that had been admitted passed away and afterwards uh, the suit is brought what uh, what was the basis of it? um
3: well, both um. Joe Wellner's um, representatives and all of Clark's representatives allege very similar things. They're you know they they're um they're both suing the same center. They're represented by the same attorneys. Um, and among other things, they allege that at the center, their relatives um, uh, uh, that Mr. Wellner and Ms. Clark suffered um, because of falls. They were dehydrated, malnourished, bed sores, infections, and improper care. Um, and so they have brought suit against the facility and the local courts um, and, in Kentucky. And shortly after they um, brought their suits in the local courts, the um, the re, uh, the found Circle Health and Rehabilitation Centers moved um, um, to stay the proceedings and. Um, Um, enforce the arbitration agreement. At first, the court actually uh, enforced the agreement, but actually there was a Kentucky decision that came down in the intervening um, period that um, that cast doubt on the use of these types of arbitration agreements in nursing homes. Um, And so um, upon reconsideration, the judge ultimately declined to enforce the arbitration agreements and they were supposed to to go forward. Um, um, After that point, um, appeals were filed all the way up to the Kentucky Supreme Court, and uh, the Kentucky Supreme Court ultimately agreed that these powers of attorney agreements um, that were being used to enter into the service contracts and the arbitration agreements could not be enforced as a matter of Kentucky state law.
0: Okay. Uh, what was the their reasoning as to why they, they couldn't be enforced?
3: The Kentucky courts, um, and actually there are actually a lot of state courts that have um, Uh, provisions like this in their state constitutions that guarantee um, a certain type of access to the court. But the Kentucky courts went a step further and said, um, at least with respect to the um, Clark agreement, which is a general power of attorney, say some very broad terms, the types of things that you can kind of do on behalf of of the principal, um, that you needed a more express statement of intent to be bound by arbitration, some type of clear and convincing manifestation of intent in order to be bound by an arbitration agreement. And the reason why they said that is because of what they called the constitutionally revered ancient mode of trial by jury, that the right to have your cases decided by a jury was so sacred that it couldn't be waived um uh, before the fact, by some agent, without some type of express statement that you were allowed to do so um, it was it was this it was actually this decision it was this aspect of the Kentucky decision that was really cha- was really taken on the most by the Supreme Court um, as to whether or not this type of rule that ex required an express statement in, in a power of attorney agreement that specifically um Specifically discriminated against arbitration as opposed to other modes of settlement or dispute resolution. The Federal Arbitration Agreement, um, which was passed in you know the 1920s, was designed to place arbitration on equal footing with the courts. Um, and so, what the defendants here said was that an, uh, a state rule that essentially placed arbitration on a different footing by requiring some additional express statement before you could be bound by arbitration was something that violated the FAA. But the Kentucky Supreme Court ultimately said, "Look, we're not reaching a question of a contract defense we're just kind of reaching this this step." before you even get to the arbitration agreement, whether the arbitration agreement was even formed. And that's something that we're allowed to do as a matter of Kentucky state law. And as a matter of Kentucky state law, when it comes to interpreting power of attorney agreements, we are going to require that there be some express manifest- manifestation of intent before you're going to be bound by one of those agreements.
0: Sure. So the Kentucky Court is saying, hey, we're not saying there's anything inherently wrong with arbitration, but we're just saying if a- a person is going to cede their, their control of their legal affairs to an agent, that it's clear to them that they'll be, in some instances, perhaps ceding their, their right to a trial by jury.
3: That's right. And, he, like, you know, the Kentucky Supreme Court uh, even said that, you know, it, it kind of pointed out in other aspects of the opinion, other areas where they would have said that, um, you know, had the party signed the agreement and the question of whether or not, um, it was entered into by fraud or duress, like all of those types of things that would be arbitrated. Here we're simply saying the contract was never formed because it, by the w- virtue of the Kentucky law as it applies to these power of attorney agreements, um, there was no authority to even enter into the agreement.
0: Okay, so the case is appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court and it comes up. Uh, following some some major arbitration-related cases in which the, the court has is, is pretty clearly frowned upon state courts that that seek to avoid enforcing arbitration clauses in agreements. Um, for example, cases like at t versus Concepcion from a few years ago, a, a very bellwether ruling, at, and DirecTV versus Bergia, one out of California. More recently, does uh, this case Differ from those in, in meaningful ways. It's just sort of a, another chapter and a similar story. How how does how's it similar or different from from those recent arbitration cases?
3: So in some ways, it's just another chapter in the same story. Um, like this this case reaffirmed in the court um, and rendering its decision and saying the FTAA does preempt these types of agreements. Kind of said, look, we're not making any new law here. Um, uh, j- just as we've said before that um, that discriminating against arbitration agreements is something that is um, that this federal law prohibits um, and that we're and we're going to kind of trump any type of state imposed obstacles to uh, putting arbitration on equal footing. that principle applies here too. One thing that did make it a little bit different is that cases like a t and t versus Concepcion or cases before it like Buckeye I check cancelling, or even going all the way back to like a 1967 decision called Prima Paint. Um, most of those cases centered on uh, defenses that you would make to a contract that was that was already formed. You're saying the contract was formed, but it was but it was under duress, or or fr- or, or it was there was fraud, or it was unconscionable, or illegal, um, and this type of case was, like a, was a little bit different, because in this case, there was a question about whether or not the contract was formed at all. Like those types of contract defenses about contract formation like go to the question of, like, did you even sign the agreement? You know, did the person who signed the agreement even have authority to do that? And in a, a long line of cases involving who gets to decide the court or the arbitrator. The court has typically said that that's a meaningful distinction. Typically, it's arbitrators who get to decide those substantive contract defenses, illegality, fraud, and conscionability. But it's the court that usually decides questions of who signed the agreement or whether someone had authority to sign it. And so, here what the plaintiffs, were doing, we're saying that, well, that same distinction that's been drawn as to who gets to decide how to interpret an agreement or a contract should also apply to whether or not the FAA um, even preempts this type of claim. And because Kentucky law decides um, uh, who has authority to sign the agreement, that, that this case is different from all of those other Supreme Court cases that have said that Federal Arbitration Act preempts state law. The court said no. Um, The court said that actually questions of contract validity are also squarely within the province of the Federal Arbitration Act. Um, if it were not, it could be trivially easy to avoid these types of arbitration agreements. A state could simply declare everyone was incompetent to enter into an arbitration agreement. Um, and so for that reason, the court said, no, the FAA is just as concerned about these types of issues. And so on the one hand, while it does kind of represent just kind of an, one other chapter in the Supreme Court's Federal Arbitration Act or jurisprudence. On the other hand, it is a—it's one other step towards kind of um, saying that here's this, this one other way of possibly getting around the FAA, saying that state law didn't even authorize me to sign the agreement is also going to be a closed door to plaintiffs as well.
0: Uh, why would that be, why would it make it trivially, trivially easy, as they say, to, to skirt the Federal Arbitration Act if that distinction is um, allowed?
3: What the court meant when it said we're worried that if we were allowed this potential avenue of defense, a contract formation defense to kind of open up the doors to states avoiding the FAA, avoiding arbitration, that that states could come up with all of these different ways to incapacitate people from ever signing arbitration agreements. They could say, look, no one no one in the right mind would ever sign an arbitration agreement, and so we were we we just hereby say no one has authority to enter into them if they were to do that, then that seems like that would run against at least one of the main policies of the f a a which was to kind of place arbitration on equal footing with courts like if if a state could actually really say everyone is incompetent to sign an arbitration agreement then then that would seem to kind of flout one of the very purposes of the Federal Arbitration Act, which is to kind of make arbitration not only a viable option for parties, but one that's on equal footing.
0: Maybe one other interesting thread to pull out here that we're talking about litigation and trials by jury as opposed to arbitration, but um, there's some room in the middle. like You could have, a, obviously, a, a bench trial or there could be mediation. I think there were some points made in, in the opinion or, or argument that um, the fact that the plaintiffs weren't claiming that you would have to make it clear in a power of attorney that hey, you might be susceptible to have a trial by uh, – a bench trial as opposed to a trial by jury sort of undercut their their claim and made it seem like they were really singling out arbitration as something suboptimal and, and on a different footing with those other uh, non-jury type resolutions.
3: Yeah. Well, this is actually something that came up in our argument. It was raised um, very powerfully by Justice Breyer. Um, and really, um, I think it was in that colloquy where the plaintiff's case clearly seemed on very weak footing. Justice Breyer posed a series of hypotheticals um, to uh, to the plaintiffs in the litigation, saying, "Well, like, does does your theory, does the Kentucky Supreme Court's theory mean that you couldn't settle a case, that you couldn't mediate a case?" And And you saw the attorney in the oral argument really kind of struggling with that. And indeed, the Supreme Court, in its opinion itself, pointed out that um, it seemed like this rule of the Kentucky Supreme Court only applied to arbitration, but it didn't really seem to apply to other forms of dispute resolution like settlement discussions or mediation. So it was—it seemed kind of perverse that someone with the power of attorney could institute a litigation, could settle that litigation after the fact, but just could never do it through the process of, of an arbitral um, forum. And so the court in a footnote said, just mark that as another indication that this court's demand for specificity in the power of the attorney arise from the suspect status of arbitration rather than the sacred status of jury trials. Given that it seemed as though this Kentucky rule would have contemplated that people could settle a case, it really seemed like the rule was singling out arbitration as something that was suspect and that should be disfavored. And that's a problem because that's what the Federal Arbitration Act is supposed to be all about. It's supposed to prevent states from discriminating against arbitration.
0: Now this is a, an eight to one opinion. They're the lone dissenter is Justice Thomas. Could you tell me what uh, what his problem was with the majority opinion here?
3: Well, Justice Thomas wrote um, a short and sweet dissent, um, and in part it's because he's dissented on these grounds before. Um, I think in Direct TV as well as Buckeye Check Cashing. Um, Justice Thomas adheres to the view that the FAA does, is not designed to preempt. Um, State law in this area, um, and so for that reason, he dissents, and that's why I say to some extent this is a narrow decision that just kind of continues the Supreme Court jurisprudence on the FAA that's been clearing away these state law obstacles to arbitration, and and you can kind of see that like it's even saying that even if the question goes to whether or not the contract is formed at all under state law, that's still something that the FAA applies to. Section 2 of the FAA um, applies to questions of contract validity and that's something that preempts state law.
0: Okay. uh, Maybe getting into some of the, the impacts that you identified from this case, you say there could be some, some more narrow ones and perhaps some broader ones to take a look at as well. We'll start with the, um, the potentially narrow impacts. You say that the impacts could be narrow because states could still prevent people from entering into uh, arbitration contracts and, and clauses under the, the generally applicable contract defenses. Um, can you tell me a bit more about what you mean here and what ways could uh, people still attack arbitration clauses and would some of those defenses perhaps apply in a case like this?
3: Yeah. So actually, this case is a, is a good example of it. I started off the conversation by saying that Olive Clark and Joe Wellner each had different power of attorney agreements. Olive Clark's um, power of attorney agreement was, was very generally written. And the, the Kentucky Supreme Court said, it's general. It seems like it's general enough to encompass arbitration agreements, but we need something more. We need a specific statement of intent to bind this person to arbitration before we'll recognize that. Now, Joe Wellner's agreement was not a general power of attorney. It instead provided a discrete series of um, powers that the agent could follow. And according to the court, it was unclear whether that agreement... Um, was broad enough to encompass arbitration, whether or not this kind of clear statement rule that the Kentucky Supreme Court was requiring of all of Clark's agreement, that a general power of attorney should specifically state includes arbitration. It was unclear to the court whether or not that this, you know, that the Kentucky Supreme Court's unwillingness to allow Wellner's agreement to bind them to arbitration was because of that clear statement rule, or just because it was a very narrowly worded power of attorney agreement that under general contract principles just didn't extend to dispute resolution. Now, under those circumstances, if it's just a general kind of defense, it's not something that's specifically targeted towards arbitration, but you're just kind of saying, look, the power of attorney only entitled me to dispose of property, but nothing more. Um, Well, then the court says, well, then as a matter of state law, that's something that, you know, wouldn't say we would necessarily reach. And that that might be a reason why this person might have lacked authority to enter into this agreement. Um, So when it comes to um, general um, contract defenses that are not specifically targeting arbitration, the court um, says, look, you know, we're not touching those types of issues at all. Um, the FAA is concerned about those types of agreement that target arbitration for disfavored agreement.
0: Yeah, maybe talking about sort of broader takeaways viewing this case in a, in a broader context, we've really touched on a couple of them, the fact that now this continues the trend and sort of continues to cement the court's regard for, for arbitration agreements and, and reiterates their fairly full-throated support of them. It's sort of interesting that, uh, you know, this case, of course, relies a lot on some of the other previous cases, including Concepcion, which I believe were 5-4 pretty close ones and somewhat controversial ones. But, of course, that's, that's the way precedent works now. They are uh, are good, settled law, and, and the regard for arbitration of this court continues to build. I suppose is that sort of the one of the main takeaways? And perhaps is the other – the idea that you have talked about that the court has clarified that in issues of formation, the FAA – also applies?
3: Well I I think that is one big takeaway. I mean this is uh, an opinion authored by Justice Kagan um, who in the past is very um, sharply dissented um, along with other members of the court from um, the kind of the path that the Supreme Court's arbitration jurisprudence has taken. And here you see like a seven to one opinion with Thomas dissenting on the same grounds he's always dissented on. um, where the, the court all seems to kind of be in lockstep and say, in saying, look, this, this type of arbitration jurisprudence, this is the law now and we're going to follow it. Notably, Kagan also cites, um, Concepcion throughout the opinion, um, which itself was you know, a, a sharply divided decision, as you know, it was a 5-4 decision. Um, and, and throughout this decision, she just cites Concepcion throughout. Um, and so one thing is, I, I do think it kind of just, it, arguably does cement um where the Supreme Court jurisprudence has been going for some time. It doesn't really say anything new. I mean, one way you can look at the decision as well or we'll look at the lineup as well is like maybe it's a way or was a way to kind of write a slightly more narrow opinion. I mean, this opinion takes pains to emphasize how narrow it is how it really is going to a very unique kind of state law that's singling out arbitration unlike other kinds of state laws that might involve more generally applicable contract defenses. So another way you can kind of look at it is maybe it's also the court kind of looking for unanimity and, um, and finding like a very narrow path towards um, um, reversing the Kentucky Supreme Court's decision without making any new law. Um, I think, you know, another uh, another question, although I think the answer is no, is what this might mean for uh, a large number of federal agencies that have gone about um, regulating and barring mandatory arbitration in the respective areas of law. So, you know, notably, uh, Medicare has barred arbitration agreements um, in nursing home contracts. Um, it did that towards the end of Obama's term. Um, there's been some litigation over this in the federal court in Mississippi. Um, it was not um, repealed by Congress, so it's, it, it, it looks like it, it's likely to go into effect. But in the in the Justice Department's arguments in front of the federal district court in Mississippi, among other things, they said, Medicare can do this. It can regulate these types of agreements in part because this really goes to contract formation. So, um, So there might be... There could be some impact on agencies that have relied on the fact that people um, are are, haven't entered into the contract yet to say, yeah, we can regulate this behavior without running afoul of the FAA. Now, notably, I, I still don't think it will do that. I still don't think it upsets anything that Medicare is doing because Medicare, like other agencies, are relying on other kinds of authority to regulate arbitration agreements. Um, and Kindred really doesn't speak to any of of those issues. Like agencies are, in some cases, relying on express authority because they have a statute that gives them power to do it. Um, Medicare relies on the fact that it provides federal funding to these facilities and says, as a condition of federal funding, you should drop these arbitration agreements. And so Kindred really doesn't speak to that issue at all. But it does undermine to the extent any agency has barred mandatory arbitration on the grounds that you know it that the FAA doesn't even apply because the contract was never even formed yet, this opinion I suppose could cast doubt on that one argument.
0: Great. Uh, it's interesting. So perhaps if that that one regulation relating to, to mandatory arbitration being barred in nursing homes, if a case like this were to come up, I suppose he said this was not a mandatory arbitration clause, but if one it was, then this could perhaps be a circumstance where the the arbitration clause would be struck down in in federal court?
3: Uh, I don't want to go that far because because that was only one argument the Justice Department made, and I don't even know if it was an argument that Medicare made in its own rulemaking, Um, but at least it undercuts that kind of argument. So, you know, agencies, there were about six or seven different agencies over the past three or four years that have barred mandatory arbitration or any kind of um, forced arbitration um, from agreements. You know, the, the most notable one that ac- is the one that actually didn't and hasn't gone to effect, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, um, considered but never got to the point where it barred those types of agreements in consumer contracts. The NLRB w- um, had said that these should be barred under Section 7 uh, of the National Labor Relations Act from employment agreements. Um, Department of Education has said, as a matter of its own rulemaking and policymaking, that they should not be included in student loan agreements. And Medicare was another one that said, "Look, we're we're not going to allow these or require the um, allow these types of agreements to exist in nursing home contracts." For some of the reasons I was mentioning at the beginning of the podcast, which is, you know, these are these are really vexed and difficult decisions that are, people are making under really trying circumstances, and they um, and Medicare was worried that this. Created poor incentives to kind of hold um, nursing homes accountable, um, and so um, they had said as a condition of federal funding, among other things, um, we uh, we we are going to bar these types of of arbitration agreements from um, these types of nursing home contracts, and that was immediately challenged in federal court. Now there is a separate question over whether or not. Absent having some more express authority from Congress, Medicare can do this, you know, and I think that's really the main challenge. But I believe one of the arguments that the Justice Department had made was also that this doesn't really create a conflict with the Federal Arbitration Agreement because, our act, because, um, the contract hasn't even really been formed yet. Um, and if that, if that, you know, if you're going to credit that argument or if anyone was incre- inclined to credit that argument at all, I don't think you can. Now, with this decision, with the Supreme Court very firmly saying that um, that under under Section Two of the FAA, an arbitration agreement must ordinarily be treated as valid, irrevocable, and enforceable, and that that language has has meaning.
0: Okay. Well, yeah. Certainly, sounds like some some tension there uh, exists, and I doubt this is the last time that the court will. We'll hear a case relating to arbitration and get to decide just how and, and when it applies. But uh, for now, we'll leave it there. Professor Adam Zimmerman from Loyola Law School, thanks very much for being on the podcast to chat about it. I appreciate it.
3: Thanks so much for having me. It's been a total pleasure.
0: And with that, the program for May 19th, 2017 is complete. Big thanks to both of my guests, Professors. Richard Hassan and Adam Zimmerman from UCI Law and Loyola Law, respectively. Thanks to you for tuning in. It's much appreciated. Don't forget that one CLE credit can be yours for listening to the show. Just find a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. I'm Brian Cardile. I look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.